Hi, really glad you've been able to join us today. Uh, I'm Andy Tuck. Uh, I work here at our Wimbledon venue. It's so good that you can join us today, wherever in the world you're joining us. If you're joining us from uh, overseas from the UK, um, it's really wonderful you're here. If you're watching this in another venue, also delighted to be with you um, today. Um, today is actually part two of two. Um, I'm actually going to be speaking on John 11, part one, in, at the end of July. That feels a long way away from where we are now. Uh, this week, we're heading towards Easter. And this Easter, we're looking ahead, we're jumping ahead in John's gospel. Um, so we're staying in John, but we're moving a few chapters ahead. And so this week, we're looking at John 12 and the triumphal entry. Next week, we're going to be looking at John 20 and the resurrection of Jesus. And so the stories that we're going to be looking at today in the first half of John 12 really do follow on from uh, John 11. Uh, and these stories that we're exploring today, um, they're both iconic stories. So in verses 1 to 11 that we're going to be looking at, we see that Jesus is being anointed by Mary at Bethany. And then verses 12 to 19, we see Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now these two stories can feel so different. Like one is at a party where we witness the devotion of one of Jesus' followers. It feels intimate and close. And the other is this huge political event that's the talk of the city in the nation. There are heaving crowds of people and shouting and cheering and it's full of energy and expectation. And yet both of these stories start with excitement at Jesus' arrival. Uh, both of them include a moment of worship. Both reveal something of Jesus' unexpected purpose. Both result in increased opposition to Jesus and both challenge our response to Jesus. So let's explore both of these stories uh, in turn and let's allow these stories to show us more of who Jesus is. Now John's gospel was written with an express purpose that we would find out more about Jesus that we would have life in his name. So what do we learn about Jesus through these stories? Well, let's start at the beginning of the chapter. We're gonna work through um, a, a chunk at a time. I'll be, I'll be reading them through as we, as we go. So let's get stuck in. Verse one first, six days before Passover. That's how this chapter starts, six days before Passover. And with saying that, John starts a ticking clock. It's a ticking clock that counts down to Good Friday to that Easter weekend. That, that Passover is when Jesus will die. That there is a looming shadow of the cross that enters into our story here. And that first weekend, those storm clouds are gathering. We're just a week before the Last Supper, before Jesus' trial and execution. Here in John 12, uh, John is pointing us ahead to those events. Now this is a mark of John's Gospel. He's building towards the cross. So through our series, we're able to pause and look at these different moments and see these encounters that Jesus has with individuals. But all the way through, John is building a picture. He's pointing us towards Jesus coming to die on the cross. Uh, last time I spoke to you was John 3, where um, there Jesus talks about the Son of Man must be lifted up, looking ahead towards the events of the cross and the Easter uh, weekend. So here there is a countdown to Easter, but our story in John 12 starts with a dinner party. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was thrown, given in Jesus' honour. 
Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. So here we are. It's a dinner party held in Jesus' honor and Lazarus was there. Now this might not land with the same emotional hit uh, today as if, uh, than it would than if we had looked at John 11 last week. Because this is part two of a story in which at the start of John 11, Lazarus is sick and he dies. The detail that we're given here, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus has raised from the dead, it almost feels a bit casual, doesn't it? But man, what a story, what a moment. The wonder of this, it's a, a pinnacle miracle. The start of John 11, um, Lazarus lays sick and is dying and dies. Start of John 12, he's the guest at a dinner party and a celebration held in Jesus' honor. No wonder this party is being held. Can you imagine what it was, would have been like to have witnessed this event? Someone who had been dead in a tomb is raised back to life and you get to celebrate that with the guy who performed this miracle. Now there are three key characters in the story that we often see together. Three siblings, uh, Lazarus, Mary and Martha. They are great friends of Jesus. We see them a couple of times in John's gospel. And we see all three of them at this party. Martha is doing her thing. She's serving Jesus and serving others wonderfully. Uh, Lazarus here, alive again, is in the middle of these celebrations. And then in walks Mary. Verse three. Uh, then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it out on Jesus' feet and wiped uh, his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now this perfume, the detail we're given is nard. We're told it's expensive. It is. Uh, I'm going to be preaching this message live in, in Wimbledon in a, a, um, uh, on a couple of weeks' time. And uh, it's expensive. I thought about buying it so I could try and fill this room with this smell. Man, I got like 10 milliliters for 10 quid. That's expensive stuff. But imagine this moment. Imagine this moment. There's this dinner party. Think celebration. Think like boisterous mood. There's lots of, lots of chat. And then Mary comes in. And the attention would have been fixed on her as she broke open, poured out this expensive perfume. We're told it would have cost a year's wages. And she comes and anoints Jesus' feet, pours this over him. The, the, the smell probably would have been overpowering as it fills the house. It, it would have drawn attention, everyone's attention fixed on this one moment. And all the reactions are positive to it. We're told in verse four, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As the keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Here John is providing us a role model for how we should respond to Jesus. Just like the Samaritan woman acts as a role model for us in how we should share our faith back in John 4, here in John 12 we've got two more women who serve as examples to us. Martha in her service and Mary in her extravagant worship and we need to be more like them both. And let's focus on Mary. 
despite the evident shock and disapproval in the room, Jesus, is re- Jesus recognizes Mary's act of devotion. And two things here stand out for me. One is her humility. Um, when often when John 13 is preached, when Jesus washes the disciples' feet, we make a big deal of how dirty people's feet would have been and the, the need for a servant to come and do this. So the fact that Mary comes in and is pouring out this perfume and washing Jesus' feet with her hair, I mean, there's something sort of tender and beautiful, intimate happening here. This is a a moment of devotion and humility, uh, but also her extravagance, a year's wages. I mean, in the UK, that's thousands of pounds. I, I don't know where you live. Think of the amount of money that you would earn in a year, spending all of that on one item and pouring it out in one moment of outrageous and extravagant worship. Do you worship God like that? What gets in the way of us praising God exuberantly? Now there was a block on this worship for Judas. Now this is the only time that Judas speaks in John's gospel. It's here in verse five. And we hear that John's comment on him, that he was a thief. He seems to have raised this concern of the poor, but John's saying, don't be deceived. We were at the time, don't be deceived. He was a thief, he helped himself to that money. That's what he wanted. It was his own greed that drew him to this objection. And it's a reminder that our money needs to be stewarded well too. No matter how much you have, it needs to be stewarded well. And we need to guard against a love of money. We need to guard against a use of money that would look at an act of devotion like this to one worthy of that worship and say, no, what are you doing there? I, I would want that money for my own personal gain. We need to be careful of that when we come to worship God. So what gets in the way of you praising God exuberantly? It it might not be money. It might be something else. In verse seven, Jesus speaks against Judas' condemnation. He affirms Mary's worship. He says, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. What Jesus says here looks ahead to his burial after his death. Now Jesus' death was coming much sooner than anyone here at this dinner party would have recognized. Exactly one week on from this moment, Jesus' body would have been lying in the cool and silence of the garden tomb, the Saturday evening before that Sunday morning. And here Jesus is either suggesting that she should save the perfume for then, or perhaps to keep the memory of this moment without that tarnish of Judas's criticism but whatever Jesus is meaning here there is a wonderful detail for us to ponder the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume this is what our worship to God is like to him a sweet smelling perfume now this would have been perfume in a smelly world (laughs) if you like me live in the western world we are so sanitized we mask all the smells that would have dominated Jesus this time. There is something still though, isn't there, about sweet smells. Uh, smells that draw your attention towards something or someone, a particular perfume that they're wearing, or particular seasons where different flowers come out. At the time of the recording here in the UK, it's springtime, and there are flowers that are coming out, and there's a beautiful smell on the air. Do you know how amazing it is to think that our worship of God is like that to him? 
these sweet smells that you get. I mean, whether it's perfume, maybe it's a food. You know, that draws this wonderful memory of, ah, oh, that's what God has when we worship him. Oh, that's so good. So let us learn from Mary. She is a role model for us. Pouring out valuable things and offering to Jesus is never wasted. So what do you value? What can you give in worship to Jesus? Is that money? But like I said before, it, it might not be money. Is it your time? Is it a skill? Is it in service of others that you could do, say like in a church service, a way that you're serving the community and doing it in a way that's not just for the community benefit, you know, sort of that raw arm balancing up the pros and cons and yeah, this seems to have some benefit to it, but no, viewing it as a worship to God and therefore it having inherent value. What's your perspective on service? How you use your time, your skills to honor Jesus, to worship God? So this is my first challenge to you from this passage. Will you worship Jesus like Mary? It's a challenge for us. But let's follow the story on because we've got a second really big moment to cover uh, today, a lot of ground. And before we get to the triumphal entry, let's just note the reaction that John, the eyewitness author of this account, records for us. It's like a transition moment, a scene change from this moment of intimacy to the triumphal entry that's to come. So verses 9 to 11. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there, so at this dinner party, and came. Not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Turns out Lazarus is a bit of a local celebrity at this stage. Verse 10, so the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. There's something deeply tragic about these verses, about the Pharisees planning to kill the Lord of life that they would rather destroy evidence of Jesus' miraculous work rather than change their minds. That through this passage we see a gathering excitement but also a gathering confrontation. And so to, to, to Jerusalem this confrontation goes. And so we arrive at John's telling of the triumphal entry. And the triumphal entry is Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem a weekend before the first Easter weekend. And we start in verse 12, and we can see an instant parallel between verse 12 and verse 1, that there is great excitement as Jesus, is, Jesus approaches. He's been working miracles. He said this wonderful teaching ministry, word of him would have spread. Where he goes now, this is what he encounters. People say, oh, Jesus is coming. Now, the Passover crowd, so Jesus is arriving into Jerusalem at the time of Passover, and the Passover crowd was one of the largest gatherings of people in the ancient world, as the, as the city of Jerusalem would have been swelled with pilgrims. Um, the place would have been buzzing from Jews right across the known world. And we're given... Um, we're given a few details uh, about this story. We're told in verse 13 that they took up palm branches and went out to meet him. Now these palm branches would have been symbols. They are symbols of the nation of Israel. I'll put on the slide here just um, a photo of a, a contemporary coin from Jesus' time. This is a, a, a Jewish coin. See the, see the palm tree on it. This is a, a national symbol of Israel. And actually, um, given the 
given the political situation at the time, this was a, a symbol of rebellion and of resistance to the occupying forces. Uh, this was you effectively waving a, a national flag of kind of independence. Uh, here they're being waved in defiance of Rome, the occupying power at the time. And they would have been waved in hopes of a coming Messiah. See again in verse 13, as Jesus arrives, this crowd begins to shout verses from Psalm 118. It's the songbook of the people of Israel, and they cry out these verses. So verse 13, they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. And this word, Hosanna, it is like a almost like a, a demand, it's like a give salvation now is what it would literally mean. It means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He is said is in anticipation of a coming Messiah uh, to the one who is coming to restore Israel. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is said in anticipation, in hope of who Jesus might be. Is this the one who is coming to redeem Israel, to restore Israel, to overthrow Rome? And the third thing they say here, so Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This third thing isn't actually in the psalm. They say, blessed is the king of Israel. And that phrase there gives away something of their heart. This crowd as they approach Jesus, they're awaiting a political figure. Uh, like a national figure who will overthrow Roman occupation. Now Jesus' entry into Jerusalem fulfills Old Testament prophecy and messianic expectations of the day. But John guides us through these verses to see Jesus' true purpose, a deeper purpose. Let's see the details and the quote that we're given in verses 14 and 15. Uh, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. That's, that's another word for the city of God, i.e. Jerusalem. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. John draws our attention to this specific prophecy in Zechariah 9. And let me read you that fuller quotation from Zechariah 9. So just that, the context for those few sentences that John provides for us in his gospel. So Zechariah 9, verses 9 to 10 reads, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. He will, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now John is deliberately helping us to see what type of Messiah Jesus is to be, what type of plan he, kings, he, he intends to be. And so to Jesus, as he asked for this donkey so that he could ride in, he's, he's got this in mind, this image. He's wanting to teach us something of who he is. So what's that vision? What, what's the vision of kingship that Jesus wants us to hold on to? Well, there's a few things that we can pick up from Zechariah 9. See how it starts this, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. Now, donkey here is a, a deliberate demilitarizing of the messianic vision. Jesus isn't coming on a war horse. 
he isn't coming with an army in his train. He's coming humbly on a donkey deliberately. His rule is then to be one of peace and gentleness and tolerance. It says here he will proclaim peace to the nations. Peace to the nations. What, what a wonderful vision. This isn't a narrow nationalism. This is a, a king for the whole world whose aim is peace, not conquest or conflict. I feel this is particularly powerful for us in the world at this moment. At time of recording, we're still in the middle of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And here we see this ugly version of nationalism, of one nation invading another set on conquest. Oh, the horrible violence that we see here in the UK, the images that are filling our, our news. Destroyed cities bombed schools and hospitals, families torn apart with grief, so many millions of people displaced. This is what a nationalistic vision gets us. When one nation rises against another and seeks to impose its will on another through violent military means. Yeah, this sort of national vision, it's, it's not just in other parts of the world, I mean, for us here in the UK, we can see it. We need to be careful of it. That there are particular political agendas that can quickly take on this nationalistic, this our first attitude. In the UK, this is particularly, you can particularly see it in sort of the anti-immigration sentiments that come up from time to time. And whatever your views on the right, policies to approach there whatever you think about those man we need to really guard our hearts that we're not putting ourselves first that it's not this narrow nationalistic vision that's not of christ christ's vision is for peace for the world for the nations do you know this this vision of peace for the nations is universal. Look ahead to verse 19. That the Pharisees here are sort of commenting again on these, uh, these events. They're talking to one another. They, and they speak better than they know. Verse 19 says, So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now they're, they're probably talking about the fact that Jews from all over the known world would have been in Jerusalem for the Passover. So they were representative, representative of many different nations. See the whole world has gone over to him. All these different people, all these different nations, all these Jews from the, their different places are going after Jesus. So their exaggeration is fitting. But I think John is also highlighting their words to make another point. These Pharisees are speaking better than they know because Jesus is king overall, that, that the whole world, that the nations, all are drawn to Christ. And in our day, we're living through the fulfillment of that, aren't we? I mean, I'm speaking here in London, thousands of miles away from where these events took place. You could be watching this in a whole bunch of different places. Like I know there's a whole bunch of you in the Philippines that are watching, thousands of miles from where I am, thousands of miles from where Jesus was. We're, we're living in fulfillment of Jesus' kingdom being proclaimed to the nations and people of the nations coming to know him. But we also know that Jesus is divisive. In the Pharisees' criticism here, we see that some people welcome him, some people misunderstand him, some people plot against him. 
This is a conflict of kingdoms. And no wonder, this is the conflict that John has been portraying for us since the start of his gospel. Light has stepped into the world and darkness is coming to meet it. This is life confronting death. And into this mix of conflict, into the mix of our mess and political agendas and conflict and war, we see here Jesus being shown to us as the king of peace. And, and this is what we see here is a, a supernatural inbreaking of God into our cycle of war and power and dominance. And instead of violence, here in John 12, we see this unfolding wonder of a God who provides us peace through the death and raising of his son and the outpouring of his Holy Spirit on all people. And this is the vision that the disciples couldn't quite see yet as they stood and took in all these events on that triumphal entry day. See verse 16 in John 12. At first his disciples did not understand all this. No wonder, I mean how many layers of stuff is going on here. So at first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. (laughs) The disciples missed the point again. But these things made sense in the light of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension that was to come. The the penny drop moment for them was to come later. And so let's, let's just take a step back for a moment and consider all that we've looked at today. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes. This must have been amazing scenes for them. Like the wondrous miracles. I mean, they've seen a dead guy come back to life transformed into this local celebrity. People are coming going, oh, he died and he's now alive. That they would have been in this season of parties being thrown in Jesus' honor. I mean, parties are wonderful anyway, right? But if you're part of that mix and for such a wonderful reason, someone who was dead is now alive, wow, the joy that must have carried them through this. The crowd celebrating Jesus' arrival Man, this, the joy, they, they must have been thought, wow, the, all the expectation they're placing on Jesus in the hope that he is the Messiah, the one to fulfill all their hopes. This would have made the following chapters that we're going to be reading all the more shocking. The, the next section in John 12, Jesus goes on to predict his death. John 13, we see Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Again, another stepping down, another humility, another, actually, if you're following me, it's a journey downwards, not upwards. This builds towards the events of his trial. John 19 is crucifixion. That Palm Sunday that these events that we've looked at today commemorate are in preparation preparation week for celebrating Easter. So will you prepare yourself this week for the celebrations that are to come then? Will you recognize the King Jesus? Will you recognize his true purpose? Will you worship him? Will you allow your expectations to be shaped by Jesus and who he is? And so this week, as we prepare for Easter, man, let's reflect again on who Jesus is and what he has come on earth to do. But, but right now, let's just take some 
Let's take some time for some awed worship before our King who has come to die to take away the sins of the world.